warn you and let me warn the nation against the smooth evasion that says, of course we believe these things. We believe in social security. We believe in work for the unemployed. We believe in saving homes. Cross our hearts and hope to die. We believe in all these things. But we do not like the way the present administration is doing them. Just turn them over to us. We will do all of them. We will do more of them. We will do them better. And most important of all, the doing of them will not cost anybody anything. Uh, hello, friends and comrades. This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. It's Rob here in the shadow of Rockford Tower in the Bunker Studio. Super, super producer Carl is uh, on from a secure remote location. We are recording this on Saturday, January 30th, 2021. On this date in 1882 in Hyde Park, New York, the 32nd President of the United States was born. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a son of the Gilded Age and was re- uh, reared in the milieu of incredible wealth. In an era of economic and political crisis that posed an existential threat to the United States, Roosevelt was able to recognize that massive changes would be required to save the nation, and he was determined to be the leader for that moment and achieve those reforms. I can't think of anyone better to discuss FDR than our guest today. Since the last time we spoke, Professor Harvey J.K. has been named Emeritus Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay where he also serves as director of the Center for History and Social Change. Professor Kay's books include The Education of Desire, Marxist and the Writing of History, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, and The Fight for Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. I am pleased to welcome back to Highlands Bunker Podcast, Professor Harvey J.K. Thank you. By the way, they don't realize, but you and I can see each other, and it is really nice to see you. I, I... I'd say I miss Wilmington, but I'm not actually in Wilmington um, to, to, to experience it again. But anyhow, it's great. To, it's great to be back. And, and what a perfect day to talk about FDR, his birthday. Yeah. Um, at a time, we could, it's worth noting that we may be very, very, if you like, anxious about the nation's, the state of the nation. And we may be very second-guessing or maybe even suspicious of an administration headed by Joe Biden, whose record as a senator was marked by enthusiasm for what we know of as neoliberalism. And of course, at least in my case, I would assume in your case, I'm sure in your case, the guy we wanted was Bernie Sanders. Okay. But it, right. but it is interesting to note that during the campaign itself, the, the, the presidential campaign, not the primary campaign. During the presidential campaign, there were mixed signals coming out of the campaign itself, the Democratic Party campaign. On the one hand, we heard this guy whose name I'm blanking on, somebody, Kaufman, Bruce Kaufman, somebody who was saying, you know, we, have, we, have, we still have to f- worry about austerity because, you know, all this money that, that's not there, we have to figure out how to, how to, how to work without the money. And then on the other hand, and equally, we heard uh, the story that Joe Biden told a group of CEOs not to worry, nothing will change. Nothing so, will fundamentally change. Oh, you, you, boy, you're good. I'm going to go to you as my antiquarian, the exact <laughs> word. Um, but then on the other hand, we definitely know that, uh, that Bernie stood by Biden's side and, and Bernie had run a campaign that, though it didn't make enough of it, at least echoed much of, of an FDR-like agenda. And also the fact that Biden himself dropped hints over and over again, not just hints, but made remarks that we're going to have to go big and I'm looking forward to organizing an FDR-like administration, something to that effect. <clears throat> and then, sorry, I'm, I'll just point this out because this has really been on my mind a lot and something then came up today to, to push me in this thought direction as well. 
So last week at the, uh, not, I guess it's like already a week and a half almost since the inaugural address, the inaugural address was a very disappointing affair. Thank you for saying that because we just had a conversation we released this week. Um, I was just talking about my disappointment in it in general. I have a, actually a couple examples I think we can talk about when we get a little later in the conversation and we can talk about what's sort of going on with the with the stuff. But yeah, I was disappointed as you were in the whole well, thing. If my disappointment was based on three absences from the speech. Okay, And in book reviews, you're not supposed to criticize what's not there. But I think in a speech that's going to launch a new administration in the shadows of an of an invasion of the Capitol building by right wing neo-fascist characters uh, trying to bolster the chance of a coup by a president who for four years proved himself to be one of the worst in American history or at least the worst in American history since before the days of Lincoln. How's that? Okay. Um, that we could, we, we were looking for a real sign of the dynamism that Biden might, might represent. Uh, and we didn't get it. And I'll point, point to three things. Okay. So he spoke of unity. Actually the first, you know, it's funny, the first few lines of the speech he delivered in a way that I was convinced was going to make it a truly dynamic, truly possibly progressive speech. And I was even, you know, pleased to see the degree to which he grabbed hold of, of Abraham Lincoln. But Lincoln was the wrong one to grab hold of, in my mind. And this was the FDR moment that we should have heard. But there was no reference to Franklin Roosevelt. There was no reference to labor. And there was really no connection between the question of unity and where do we go beyond the pandemic? So as a consequence, at the end, I thought, wow, well, that was a disappointment. I mean, I was really rather let down. I, I, you know, I had these sort of fantasies, perhaps, but I was let down. And then at the end of the day, everything sort of flipped in my head and made me think all the more that he was failed by his speechwriters. And I can't help but mention there's a historian, man who calls himself a historian, I guess he is a historian, John Meacham, who wrote the book, The Soul of America. And we know that the entire Biden campaign was, was built around the idea of you know, redeeming the soul of America. And I kept saying, forget the soul of America. Let's talk about the history, the real history and the struggles that went into it. Anyhow, so at the end of the speech, I felt very let down. But that night, a story hit the news, which was really promising that the Biden administration, the president himself, had basically sent a message to the senior counsel at the National Labor Relations Board and the NLRB goes back to the FDR National Labor Relations Act of 1935, in which FDR, you know, uh, encouraged by Robert Wagner and folks in the labor movement, signed into law, basically placing the federal government behind workers' efforts to organize unions. It's as fundamental as it gets. The government wasn't going to serve as an arbitrator or conciliator. It was going to literally stand behind the labor movement in the efforts to organize workplaces where the bosses were ready to shoot rather than negotiate. Okay. Okay. So I thought, wow, that's amazing. And the, and what the message said is you've got till five o'clock to resign. Now, who is this man? Peter Robb was his, I believe was his name. And he has a brilliant record for a start, he was on the team that worked with Reagan to fire the Patco strikers back in 1981 when the air traffic controllers went on strike. And Reagan, and talk about irony, the Patco workers had endorsed Reagan for the presidency in good part because Jimmy Carter was such an abysmal president and had betrayed labor over and over again. So they, they went with Reagan. And then Reagan turns around and fires them when they went out on strike for better pay and working conditions. And this guy, Peter Robb, had been on, the, on that team that, that literally sacked them all. So I thought, great, he's firing this guy. And the word was that Biden acted as he did because labor leaders had spoken to him and said, first act, get rid of this guy, period. That's first. And then the second thing, which will then bring us back around to the FDR question, was that that night, I think it was in the Washington Post, and if it wasn't that night, it came out the very next day, when uh, Biden laid claim to the Oval Office, he cleared out the Trump relics, like the painting on the wall of Andrew Jackson, 
put up various little sort of statuettes of figures from the American past and placed on the wall most prominently opposite the presidential desk in the Oval Office so that Biden would see the image always seated whenever he was seated at the desk. And it's Franklin Roosevelt. So I thought, wow, that becomes all the stranger that given his desire to connect with Roosevelt in some kind of aesthetic or even spiritual way that he didn't mention Roosevelt in the inaugural address, which is to say that whoever helped him with the speech failed him as far as I'm concerned. And I don't say that only because I needed to be impressed. I think Americans needed to hear of the possibilities that an FDR reference might, might signify. So the, the week goes on and a series of executive orders are issued, all of them very promising. There's going to be real action. There's some other things that have happened, which I don't need to talk about, that are a little less promising. But then today in the New York Times, there's a story. They wondered where, where the ideas and the energy for these executive orders came from. And apparently they interviewed people and the Biden team literally dug into FDR biographies to figure out, you know, what made FDR FDR in those first days and weeks of the presidency. So, you know, who knows where we're going? I mean, there's a, there are signs to be, there are reasons to be hopeful despite his neoliberal record of, of the previous decades. Yeah. I mean, I, when I was thinking about how some of this FDR stuff could play itself out in the early signs, I think they are good. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm so like defensive because, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be tricked like I was tricked with Obama before and feeling like, Oh, this is good rhetoric. And this seems like a transformational figure. So I'm, I'm sort of very reticent to, because I also think, and correct me, correct me if I'm wrong. Speaking of labor, uh, there's also a bust of uh, Cesar Chavez in the Oval yes, Office now. Right. Uh, some That's... people say Cesar Chavez didn't leave the kind of reputation behind that he might have in for his more activist labor years. And I, but, but the point was, it's Bobby Kennedy and Cesar Chavez, right, are two of the figures that are displayed probably along some kind of shelving. You know, the other thing that he didn't do, Biden, which really dif distanced him from the FDR inaugural addresses. When FDR gave his inaugural address, which really shook people up for a variety of reasons, um, the spe that's the speech, by the way, in which he told Americans, we have nothing to, f no, it was, yeah, the inaugural address, nothing to fear but fear itself. But what's also interesting to note is that almost immediately, Roosevelt pointed a finger, a finger of accusation at Wall Street, at the financiers, whom he called the money changers. And by the way, and that's what distinguished him as a historical example from Obama. And I can tell you that in the case of Barack Obama, I, I remember listening to his speech. There are lots of curiosities in his speech, but one of the most devastating kinds of things is, which, well, at least pissed me off, was that Obama made it out as if the financial crisis of 2007 and eight, now it's 2009 when he's delivering his address, was all of our fault. Those were, we, we were all responsible for that, you know, and I thought, hell, <laughs> I'm not responsible. And I doubt if you, Robert, would be responsible. I might have um, been a little more responsible. I used to work at a bank, so I'm I may <laughs> I may from like a third or fourth hand been been somewhat responsible. Okay, well, I'll hold that against you for about you five minutes. As you should. But it was the case that Obama just literally made it out as if we're all it's not he didn't make it as if we're all in this together. It's that we were all somehow in this together at fault together. And I thought, how ridiculous. And it was a terror. By the way, a sign of, you know, everyone used to say how, how effective Obama was as a speaker. And he spoke, you know, he spoke remarkably well. Yeah, undeniably well. But nobody quotes him. That's telling. Nobody quotes yeah. Barack Obama, okay? Which is not a racist thing. It's because he has no memorable words. Although, you know what? I will tell you one thing that I will never forget. Sorry, my, I'm going on about Obama, but really? I'll tell you what, I'll never forget. And I think it was the most telling, and I don't want to forgive him for this. He's, he, in a speech, I believe, early in his second term, he referred very, in an alliteration, he said, Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall. 
to represent examples of the struggles of American political life. Seneca Falls of 1848, the, the birth of the modern American women's movement and the state, you know, the issuing of the Declaration of Sentiments. Selma, I think we all know back in the 60s, the march for, and the voting rights march and the bridge where, you know, terrible violence was. was. And then, of course, Stonewall, when uh, the gay community in Greenwich Village at the, I believe it was the Stonewall Bar, you know, just literally exploded when the police arrived. And it was, you know, it was a massive protest. So, okay. And I remember listening to that thing. Well, that's all well and good. But once again, once again, the Democrats turned their back on the working class in all its diversity. And why can't, why did I say that? Because there was no reference in that three, in those three references to labor. And by, and somebody said to me, well, you know, he was trying to, to use alliteration. It was an alliterative sentence. I said, no, no, it could have been Seneca Falls, Flint, Selma and Stonewall. Flint as in the big sit down -down strike strike at the Chevy plant, the Fisher body, I guess, Chevy plant in, uh, in Flint, Michigan. And they didn't. And that, but that was characteristic of the Obama administration. They turned their backs like all the other Democrats had for so many years on the very working class and labor movement that made made the modern Democratic Party alongside of Roosevelt. So, so yeah, I mean, here I- we are with Biden. And I worried no reference to labor in that speech, no pointing a finger at the culprits. And by the way, you know, we've been living through 45 years of class war from above. Okay, which has devastated not only industries, but communities and lives. And, and, you know, I mean, it's crazy and basically paved the way to Trump. So you could have imagined that he might have expressed the anger of working people a little more effectively than he did instead of just talking unity. Or as I like to put it, well, unity is all well and good, but I would have liked to have heard a little something about solidarity. Yeah, I think I mean, in looking back on it, because I look back on it and think all the time, you know, what happened? How did I how did I get Obama wrong? And I think it's, you know, Obama, people forget, you know, went up against Clinton in a, in a fairly bitter primary. And because you know, when you see him speak in person, you get sort of uh, wrapped. Um, I, you have this idea that this is a move on from Clintonism. You know, he beat Clinton. So isn't this the next thing? But no, it was a culmination of it. It was uh, it was it, it was just embracing it and trying to uh, perfect this neoliberal idea, and it did not work. Right. Yeah. No. And the, the three presidents of you know the well, Carter, Clinton, Obama, the three neoliberal presidents who who turned the Democratic Party in a direction such that it turned its back on the Franklin Roosevelt legacy and the working class's achievements during the, the Roosevelt years all the way through the 1960s into the early 1970s to establish workers' rights, both private and public employees, to not only, not only help create Social Security, but also Medicare and Medicaid. The very labor movement that enabled the civil rights movement to secure, and I know this sounds strange to people that helped to secure the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts in the 60s, because the deal was the deal was that. George Meany of the AFL-CIO and his, you know, co-leader of the industrial section of the AFL-CIO, Walter Ruther, better known for the UAW, they had agreed to go all out to secure the agenda that Lyndon Johnson proposed in the wake of Kennedy's assassination. And he said, basically, look, here's the he gave him a list, civil rights and voting rights and Medicare. And I believe the labor movement's priorities to undo the conservatism and reaction of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 was up next. Okay, it was up next and it didn't happen. But the point was that Clinton Carter, I mean, Carter utterly turned his back on labor um, truly turned and the environmental movement and the consumer rights movement in 19. 78 and clinton i don't know of anything he did other than the stuff that literally turned neoliberalism into policies such as the um mass mass incarceration the cutting of aid to families with dependent children the 
end of the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 it was, which basically kept apart commercial banking and investment banking, and now enabled commercial investment banks to operate as one, which kind of paved the way to the financial crisis of 2008. Um, and I'm leaving out some key stuff. Forgive me. Oh, NAFTA. Jeez, oh, right. how can I forget? NAFTA, the, the first blow, you might say. Um, so, you know, the Clinton years were just terrible, basically, to be a Democrat. Things may have been running smoothly, and maybe the economy was, was doing somewhat better because of the bubble they created around tech. Um, and then Obama, who seemed to promise, yes, we can. And basically, once he was in office, you know, everyone thought, well, wait a minute, when are we going to start making yes, we can into policy? And, what, and you know, he abandoned, he, he not only didn't go for universal health care, which he really made clear for, in his, in his uh, campaign that he would not, but he also abandoned the public option as part of Obamacare. Um, he, he did nothing to enact, to pursue the Employee Free Choice Act, which would have empowered workers to in, in their organization of unions by way of a card check, a certain percentage of workers who had signed a card enable the union to prevail for collective bargaining purposes. Anyhow, I mean, sorry, I'm going, I don't want to complain a lot. What I want to talk about, <laughs> let's also what? not forget that once upon a time, there was a president and an administration yeah. who knew what the American purpose and promise was all about. Yes, yeah, so um, this is a, uh, where we can start that because I think it's, a, it's an interesting story. Um, and you get a sense of it when you listen to FDR's voice, as we just did. Um, no one now in this uh, day and age um, speaks like that. Uh, the old old money sort of blue blood accent. Um, we do we do have a man who was born in the heart of the Gilded Age with enormous fortune and family lineage. Um, the Roosevelts and the Delanos and the Aspen Aspenwalls and Hudson River Gentry. Right. Um, his father was a Bourbon Democrat, laissez-faire, classical liberal elite. Uh, and this man became the champion of labor rights, the minimum wage, Wall Street reform, Social Security, all of it. How did th how did this uh, how did this uh, man of uh, such um, wealth and and sort of pampered lifestyle uh, come to uh, what he came to uh, in the 30s and the 40s? Yeah, well, one thing I want to point out to everyone is that I, so I wrote this book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, which I think you mentioned um, what made FDR and the Greatest Generation truly great. And when I was working on that back in the 2010, 11, 12 period, the one thing that really struck me was that even though it's not till later that he really becomes the ardent progressive that he did, is that even from an early moment, as early as sort of 2010, 11, 12, when he was running for state senate in New York and, and won to everyone's surprise in a previously historically Republican district, Senate district. It's the case that he was his his speeches of the time, and one of which I included, I, I edited a volume uh, last year that came out, FDR on Democracy, and I included some of his very early speeches, which are generally ignored. And one of these speeches he gave to the People's Forum in New York. And he's trying to, you can see in a speech where he's trying to figure out what it means to be a progressive. And he makes it he he makes it clear that we've essentially won the liberty of the individual in the United States. That's at least his argument. And then he says, but it's time for us to consider something like, listen to this, liberty of the community. And what is really moving towards will eventually become a new kind of liberalism, or if we were really historically accurate about it, though he never used the term social democracy. In other words, how do we, he's really interested in controlling or containing the avariciousness of capital. It's pretty clear from that early speech. And then in, he, he goes on to serve in the Woodrow Wilson administration as assistant secretary of the Navy. Uh, he runs for pres vice president in 1920 on the Democratic ticket, and they're defeated. And in that one, he learns not that he learns that the Republicans will always try to wrap themselves in the flag and claim to be the real patriots because they're the ones who attack the Democrats for their desire to create a League of Nations, which does get created for the rest of the world. And we remain outside of it. He but then something happens in his life, which most biographers think was the turning point where he really he becomes more, if you like, humane or humanistic or humanized. 
And it's, he is stricken with polio. And he spends a good part of the 1920s trying to rise above the polio. Okay, there is no cure. And he will be wheelchair bound other than when he is wearing a very special set of really, really tough leg braces to appear to be walking. But even then, he's always, always accompanied either by one of his sons or some kind of, of government official when he is walking. Well, the thing is, though, he goes from this devastating polio to become the most vibrant political figure in America by the end of the 1920s. And what does he do? Well, for a start, Eleanor Roosevelt, who is herself very, very active in the 1920s, working with labor union women in New York City. She's a member of what's called the, the Women's Trade, it's called the, yeah, Women's Trade Union League, WTL, WTUL. And this is a, a, an organization of prominent women such as Eleanor Roosevelt and socialist, immigrant, mostly Jewish, though not only Jewish, organizers in New York City. And she actually becomes very, very close friends with a couple of these women who she brings back to the Roosevelt home. And Roosevelt ends up in lengthy conversations with these women about the state of affairs in working class life. Keep in mind, 1920s, they, you know, there was no social security. There was no guaranteed unemployment payments. I mean, life was tough, even if the economy was better in the 20s than it would soon become in the 1930s. And you could see the way in which Roosevelt perhaps was humanized, not simply by his own tragedy of, of polio, but no less so by these women who he was in constant conversation with whenever she would bring them home to Hyde Park or, or to their uh, townhouse in, in Manhattan. Well, when he runs for president, no, sorry, when he runs for governor of New York in 1928 and wins, even as governor, he is really showing himself, revealing himself to be rather progressive. And when the depression strikes the nation and he's governor of New York, he begins a series of innovative policies like um, trying to, to create hydroelectric energy out of the St. Lawrence Seaway, out, uh, putting together something called, I think it was called the Temporary Employment Re Relief Agency, something like TIRA, as it was called in New York which is kind of play on the word land in, in Latin and Spanish, because it's the first effort to create something like a civilian conservation corps to put to work young men who are, are in desperate circumstances and, and need to be paid. Anyhow, he tries his experiments. By the time he announces for president in 1932, this is a man who is not simply grown, has not simply grown up in a, in a landed gentry home, but one who has learned about politics. He's learned about labor unions from when he was the assistant secretary of the Navy and was responsible for the war effort, at least regarding the Navy. And he's working with labor unions during World War I. And then in the 1920s, stricken with polio. And of course, as I said, in regular conversation with socialist women, labor organized, immigrant socialist women, labor organizers. And when he runs, he talks about the rights of workers. He talks about creating social security, called it old age pensions. He talks about addressing the environment. He talks about securing the, uh, the you know, the farmers against low prices and low commodity prices. I mean, he's got these ideas that he's spinning out, which he wraps around, he wraps in this package he calls the New Deal. That's my next question, really, is... So, and I think we've talked about it a few times and, you know, we've launched this uh, media platform, sort of like a progressive local online magazine, Del Delaware Call. And, you know, we've been tr talking with people on how they're going to uh, potentially uh, write for it or do other kinds of media, what they can contribute, all of this kind of thing. And, and so I, I've had tons and tons of conversations over the last month or two about messaging. How do we message? What's the, we put this package together and we message. And I thought, I'm talking to, to Professor K. The New Deal is like, you forget how great of a message it is because it's, it's the way that everybody refers to every, all of those reforms. Uh, they took, you know, we, everybody tries to play on it again. We have the Green New Deal now. We had, you know, all of these, you know, the Great Society was the next step of the New Deal. So it, it may be. And I was trying to think 
uh, last couple days knowing leading up to this conversation if I could think of a better political message behind a program than the New Deal, and I couldn't. No, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's funny. There, once upon a time, you had terms like, uh, oh, geez, the fair deal. Was that... Uh, was that Truman tried to talk about a fair deal, or was that Teddy Teddy Roosevelt? In other words, it was not a unusual. square deal. Wasn't there a square deal? A square deal probably was Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I, somebody's okay. going to correct me once this comes out, but I think that was Teddy Roosevelt. FDR talked about a new deal, and I believe Harry Truman talked about a fair deal. Okay, and then of course John Kennedy had his new frontier, right? I, you know, Bernie Sanders really did try to bring back to life the FDR vision. He talked about the Green New Deal. He talked about workers' rights, which was linked to the whole idea of the National Labor Relations Act. He talked about an economic bill of rights, which was linked to FDR's call in 1944 for a second bill of rights for Americans, which would really have turned us truly into a social democratic nation that was always there from the beginning. And, and by the way, I, I want to make one thing clear. Roosevelt, in 1932, during that presidential campaign, Nobody seems to remember this. They all look, I wrote a whole book on the four freedoms. I've talked endlessly about the economic bill of rights idea of 1944. But I want to make it clear that from the very start in the campaign of 32, all the way through to his final days in 1945, the idea of a new bill of rights of an economic and social sort was on FDR's mind. So, for example, and this is like the greatest speech if you get a chance to read it. It's in this collection of mine, FDR and Democracy. So in 1932, about a month or so before the elections of no that November, he goes out to San Francisco and he speaks at what's called the Commonwealth Club, which is a club of presumably men, but maybe m women were present. It was a, a, a very prominent club in San Francisco. And he gave a speech in which he reviews American economic history in his own way, and he talks about the fact that we had lost touch with the Declaration of Independence and that for too long in favor of economic growth, we've allowed titans of industry, you know, capitalists on a grand scale to emerge and essentially, if you like, not just turn their backs, but undermine and subvert the promise of the Declaration of Independence. Now, what did he have in mind? Three terms, life liberty and the pursuit of happiness as he put it life requires jobs that pay well liberty you cannot you cannot pursue the freedoms that are that are named if you don't have the wherewithal to do so and the pursuit of happiness as well so even in 32 he's laying out a kind of social democratic argument which is rooted in the american revolution and then in 1941, he proclaims the promise for the post-war period, should we end up in the war, and in any case after the war, the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And then finally in 1944, the, the last of the truly great speeches in which he calls for an economic bill of rights and warns Americans at the end of the speech that there will be those businessmen who will basically operate like fascists and try to, to not, try to deny the, our need and desire for this economic bill of rights. And it wasn't that far off, given what, what ensued over many, many years. So um, I like the idea of resurrecting the, 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 the language of the New Deal. And I also want to remind everyone that the New Deal was not simply a top-down, legislative, administrative kind of process. Built into the New Deal from the very start, was bottom-up participation. So the in the very first acts, the National Industrial Recovery Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, it always provided for popular representation in the decision-making. And moreover, in the National Industrial, Industrial Recovery Act, it actually it declared the right of workers to organize and bargain collectively. Companies found a way around it, and then in 1935, FDR signed into law the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, which made it all the more the case that government would make sure that if workers wanted a union, they had the government's authority standing behind them to secure it against businessmen who were ready to go to war against labor 
because they just didn't want to recognize the union. They were building up armaments, armories on their own on their own factory premises. So I like the New Deal. I, I you know, it's I think it's imperative. And people talk, by the way, this is as I say in one of my books, FDR launched all these new administration, you know, these new agencies, you know, the the CCC, the WPA, the PWA, they were called the alphabet soup of agencies. But we shouldn't forget that there was also the popular level of alphabet soup, you know? It was like United Mine Workers, United Steel Workers, United Auto Workers. I mean, labor itself explodes in, in, in pursuit of the rights of workers and to make the nation all the more democratic. Yeah, I that goes right into the next sort of idea I wanted to explore because I agree with that. Um, I was forwarded something to read um, this week, a commentary, abstract for a commentary that was going to go on the call. And it made basically two arguments. One is that the reactionary right has become excessively radical and dangerous. Yeah, well, that, I like the word reactionary more that's, than anything. Oh, I use the word reactionary. They didn't, but it, but I that's how I that's how I understood it. But the second bit of it was that the answer to this is to rediscover centrist deal making and pragmatism. When in my view, the history says we would rely on something like uh, what you would call like a, a painite sort of plan of radical transformation. You know, and so I didn't want to entertain this idea. And, and so I, I got back and I was like, you know, I just I don't think historically I would want to make this second point because I don't think that it's it's not that I disagree with it. I don't think it's accurate. I wonder what you think about that. Well, let me start off with something that I don't think we actually appreciate. I don't think the left appreciates it. Okay, forget about the rest of uh, the political uh, intelligentsia. It's this. Think about the three mortal crises of the american story mortal m-o-r-t-a-l i mean that exactly mortal crisis so there's the crisis of the 1770s what is america to become okay remember we could have ended up some people will think that would have been a great deal but we could have ended up like canada period okay um will we remain colonies or will we do something else right i'm just going to name the crises first second the crises the crisis of the 1860s, the crisis of the Confederacy, the secession. Will we be a singular nation state or will we be two or more nation states? Will we allow that to transpire? And then, and we know, we know, okay, that that really revolved around the question of slavery. I'll come back to it. And then the crisis of the 1930s. And the crisis of the 1930s was the worst social and economic catastrophe in American history. Many people, many prominent people, major magazines, prominent academics were wondering if we needed somebody like Mussolini, you know, that we might need to turn to a dictator, some kind of figure who could literally dictate the terms of how to get out of the Depression. And of course, following soon after the 30s Depression is World War II, where fascists the fascists in Europe, the Nazis in Europe, and Japanese militarists are literally conquering the world. Now, let's be clear. You could not have a fortress United States. It would not have, it would not have worked. Likely, we might have been able to avoid the war, but only on the terms dictated by the likes of Adolf Hitler. And as a Jewish American, I could tell you I would not want to live in any country where the terms of, of survival were dictated by Adolf Hitler. So, Let's start with the fact that we had three, possibly four mortal crises in our history. How did we resolve these crises? Well, there's something that is similar in every case and a very radical in every case. The way in which we confronted our enemies whether and transcended the crises is Americans in those times, whether they really were ever conscious of it, in terms of radicalism, radically transformed the state of America. So we went from being a collection of colonies to a nation state or the makings of a nation state based on the 
idea and in many ways the makings in a very pragmatic and practical way of a democratic republic. We know, we know the tragedies. We know what didn't happen. But what we shouldn't forget is that we transcended the crisis of 1770s by creating the makings of a democratic republic which, by the way, guaranteed separation of church and state, and don't take that lightly, okay? We confronted and transcended the Confederate enemy by bringing an end to slavery. And by the way, in each of these cases, this was as much a bottom-up process as it was a top-down. Lincoln was only empowered, really, to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, which he would have loved to have done sooner, but he could only do so when he was finally empowered by black slaves in the South escaping plantations and running to the Union lines and seeking some involvement in the Union's cause, and by way of Northern workers and farmers who had enlisted to, to, or been drafted, but really enlisted in the Union cause to, to sustain the nation, and on encountering slavery and the plantations, realized they truly were fighting to bring an end to the scourge of slavery. Yeah. And then in the 1930s, the 1930s, it really, if you look closely, and we've talked about this a little a few moments ago, it was a radical transformation. The landscape was radically transformed by the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration, the Public Works Administration. The environment was rescued. Public infrastructure was built on an unprecedented scale. Social security was established to combat poverty among the elderly and the disabled and single-parent households, and so on and so forth, and the National Labor Relations Act, which literally empowered workers to pursue industrial democracy. And you think about that. So what's the story of America? Well, the story of America is not those reactionary SOBs who like to tell us that, uh, that, the, that only white folk should rule in this country, but it's a struggle, basically, to enhance American democratic life over and over and then over again. So if anyone tells us we have to learn the art of compromise to redeem the nation, they have no sense of history. But of course, that characterizes all too many people. And I think what we need to remind ourselves is we are, we too are in a mortal crisis right now. It's been 45 years in the making by way of that class war from above. Inequality is on a scale which makes democracy essentially untenable untenable and how do we how do we overcome this crisis how do we overcome a crisis in which the right wing has dictated political economic and cultural terms and i say right wing and i'm including the neoliberal democrats of these past few decades how do we transcend this we transcend it simply put by going as progressive as we can or better said as i said in my more recent a book take hold of our history we do it by making america radical again I mean, yep. that's what we do. We and, empower and workers. We, we, we abolish. We literally abolish poverty. Okay? We guarantee the rights of women to control their own bodies and to be equals in, in all areas of American life. We make sure the Voting Rights Act is fundamentally and fully back together again to guarantee the rights not only of people of color who've, who've suffered the most over the many decades from you know, right-wing voter suppression, but also to guarantee the rights of students, who, by the way, were part of the target of all these voter ID systems that have been imposed. I mean, we know if we just look into our own history, we have these examples. We don't necessarily have to do exactly what they did. We don't have slavery right now, although we've got a hell of a lot of mass incarceration. We don't have to fight for our independence, although Donald Trump's relationship with Putin left a lot to be desired. Um, we got to go for it. And, you know. Yeah, that that brings uh, us to what I've been thinking about after the Biden inauguration and where we could go with all of this. One of the things at the inaugural and, and we uh, we had a panel discussion and talked about it uh, about a week ago was the uh, the Nobel laureate from California who, who, who did a poem. And. Generally, Wait, Nobel laureate? Or excuse me, I'm sorry, poet laureate. Uh, par, so, thank you for catching me on that. Yeah, that doesn't make the young woman, <laughs> remarkable, extraordinary, yeah, yeah. extraordinary presentation. However, my concern with it, and the reason I did not like it, yeah, was going to say, but tell me anyhow, was simply because it 
it reinforces the enthusiasm of the story with, without reinforcing the idea that it's not some sort of natural progression or we're, we're not endowed with like, it, we're not just going to win because it says we're going to win. Um, you know, it's not, uh, I think the, the, what I said was the moral arc of the universe might bend, doesn't just bend towards justice. Everybody's got to get behind it and push it. Yeah, and times, by the way, it's bent utterly back. Right, and then we have to get it just so it's straight up and down yeah. again. There is a poem, and, as long as you brought up poetry. Okay. Uh, have you ever really read all the way through Langston Hughes? No, Let, just some, just like... You have got to read Let America Be America Again, because the, the, the key line which comes across ultimately is the America that never has been but must be. And this goes to... You and I had a brief exchange, and we talked about, you know... The Nightmare of America versus something else. And I, I'm going to tell you, I think there have been various poets in American life who have really captured the meaning of America as effectively as any political writer. I'll mention Walt Whitman. I'll mention Archibald MacLeish. I'll mention Carl Sandburg. I'll mention Langston Hughes. And the finest of the poems is Langston Hughes, Let America Be America Again. It's absolutely, Let America Be America. It's absolutely wonderful. And I, 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 I'd like to, I mean, I, I'd love to recite it myself sometime, but I'll have to do it as a reading. I'm not that good at m memorizing a poem. And it's just absolutely remarkable. And that we are at that moment where we should all be required as good citizens to read that poem. Um, maybe, maybe we should do a podcast sometime soon and we'll read that aloud together. That's a good idea. I like that. I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I just, I, 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 I guess I feel like I... I need to be part of a group who are pointing out that for this to work, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of our work. Like I, I don't like, I, I, I don't like a lot of flowery stuff or stuff that makes people who, you know, before Biden was inaugurated, they were mad at the TV a lot. And, and now, and now they don't have to be mad at the TV. And I'm like I said, I said it before. I'm glad that they're not mad. I don't want people to like, you know, not you know, stress out because Trump is a maniac. I mean, he is a maniac. That's I mean, you saw everybody saw what happened. So it's not that I'm trying to minimize that. I, I'm just saying like maybe now's not the time to take a like a, a deep breath and and just go to sleep. You know what I mean? That's that's not and I and, and that's not what's going to happen. And I know you don't believe that. I mean, you've written your, most of your work is around this idea of meeting uh, American historical moments with the the, the radical uh, action it deserves. Yeah, you mentioned Thomas Paine. I think look, Thomas Paine had a great line in his revolutionary pamphlet, "Common Sense," and it's a line that's both fundamentally true and fundamentally false. And there aren't too many. Only the finest lines can be both, okay? And the line is, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. Now, that's fundamentally untrue, okay? Because we all have memories, which means we can't quite start all over again. But it's, fu it's fundamentally false. I mean, and it's fundamentally true, however, because what he's saying is that history is in our hands, Okay. You know, Mark said, you know, we're given history, but it's us. It's up to us to make something of it. Well, Thomas Paine was the very first, to my mind, modern political thinker that he could say we have it in our power to begin the world over again. That's the contradictions of modern life. OK, cynicism has no place. No place for you and me. OK, pessimism and optimism. I don't want to fall into either one of them. It really has to do with remembering we have it in our power. And by the way, FDR himself had a great line that echoed that. He said, um, economic laws are not given by nature. They're human. They're created by human beings. In other words, the world is socially created. Even the economy is socially created. By the way, you know, people say, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, the fact is that we could make it so if we wanted yeah. We can make it. Uh, we can make it so if we want to. We can say, okay, we're going to create. But it, what it means is that we're going to have to recognize that that economics is a social construct. Okay, you can't. People say, well, you know, we have laws and other things. 
you can't have an economy without rules and regulations and laws, and those are humanly created. Yeah, I've, you know, I've I, been... I love when I love when the capitalists over his, through history have said, "Don't interfere in the in the workings of the economy." It's all well and good, but they were constantly work using the law to sanctify what they were doing. They'd call in the police, and by the way, the law itself was of property is constructed, yes, to protect homeowners, but all the more. To const- it was constructed in a fashion to prevent the creation of a more social democratic, if not socialist, kind of politics. Yeah, I mean, the lessons in history are there. And I think by telling them, I always call it a lack of imagination. Like, you're, you're not thinking about it. If you don't realize that it's engineered, that it's a, it's a construct, um, your imagination isn't good enough. We have to work on your imagination is kind of what I usually say. You know, I, I you know, I, there's so many stories. I'm going to be talking to, uh, I guess, some of Carl's uh, subliminal messages have worked because we're talking to another historian in about 10 days' time, another Professor Emeritus as well. It's just a fancy show now. Everybody's a fancy. Well, you do know that Professor Emeritus, what it me- you know exactly what it means? Yeah, it means you've done enough and you're retired now. That's right. Like, well, you're retired, you're, <laughs> well, you're retired and, and recognized as still on the faculty, but you don't participate in faculty governance. In other Perfect. Words, still... So it seems like the perfect setup to me. Yeah, I mean they don't pay you, but you know you get your pension <laughs> for that. But it is yeah. who's who you got to have on? Uh, Richard White. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, "Of Reconstruction in the Gilded Age." He's at Stanford. Fantastic. Uh, it's called Sounds "The Republic great. for Which It Stands." He's also his his Ballywick really is the uh, the expansion of the railroads. He wrote a book called "Railroad: It's History of the Railroad." The name is very familiar. I mean, it's, that period of time is not my primary field. Yeah, but, but I try but to read in all the areas. But you you bringing out this these idea of this labor stuff and me thinking about these stories that he's telling, um, uh, you know, about the the evolution of that you know not a lot of people understand that and think that well the economy we have just is was like that's what it is it's like a thing that operates outside of our control or something and it's it's absolutely engineered and and the architecture is built to do what it's doing we did we did it yeah we built it this way Yeah. yeah right right and that's what roosevelt was trying to say in that speech of 32 yeah we have failed. We have we have abandoned the original social contract that was in the Declaration to guarantee all life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we've afforded far too much power and wealth to a class of industrial titans. Okay, yeah. and and he sa- and what he's saying is doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I mean, as you said, Biden uh, did make a move to on the National Labor Relations Board. Um, to sort of signify that we're going back to the idea that the government's taking the worker side. Um, yeah. I haven't I haven't heard a lot of people use the word austerity, which I'm glad right. I haven't heard that right. because that's I, right. I, I, and I and I think maybe the reason that you haven't heard it is because there's an understanding that uh, people will people do not want to hear that word. Yeah. So let, I'm gonna I'm gonna forgive me. I, I don't take this as a test. But I'm gonna just I'm gonna ask you a trivia question. And by okay. the way, I think about the only person in the country who can answer it is probably me. <laughs> well, that's I'm glad you're being fair about it. That's good. And you'll see, only because when I came upon it, I was in shock. I mean, I was already predisposed, given everything I knew about Jimmy Carter's presidency, to utterly disdain it. But I had no idea that I'd be that my disdain would be so energized by what i discovered so i won't test you i'll just tell you the term austerity as the as if you like the slogan of neoliberalism was jimmy carter you know the guy who first referred to austerity was jimmy carter i've been getting a little bit into the work of rick perlstein because oh sure, Rick is a, he's, fr- yeah, a longtime friend. Yeah. Oh yeah, great. I hope I hope to. Uh, I haven't gotten through all the books yet. Once I do my diligence, I hope to be able to speak to him. I, oh no, I, 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 if Rick hears this, I apologize, but I could never make it my way through all of those <laughs> thousand pages or whatever they are. Yeah, but that's the thing. I bought I mean, them, but I didn't work. I I used them as reference tools more than a. Yeah, but that's the thing with Carter. I think that work that he's done has really put that in stark relief. It's like Carter's problem was he told he accepted this neoliberal framework and told everybody the truth. Yeah, you're going to have to turn your heat down. 
It sucks. There's nothing we can do. They're gonna. They're, they've got us now. And he's and the people didn't want to hear that. And nor, nor should they have wanted to hear it. You shouldn't have. He shouldn't have even done it. Yeah, don't 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 compliment him for honesty because frankly, his the way in which he did it was he basically turned American against American. In other words, once again, it's like, well, it's all our faults and we've got to do this. Well, that's bullshit. Okay, we, okay. He abandoned labor. He abandoned the environmental movement and he abandoned the Nader folks with the consumer in the consumer movement. And the fact is that even before he became president, his family had a record of anti anti FDR politics so you know when he did that talk about put on his what cardigan look to look like mr rogers and sat in front of a fireplace give me a malaise malaise that's a big malaise yeah and every but which a word he didn't actually use in the right that's it that they used it in the times i guess the next day yeah it but he did use the word word austerity in the series of speeches on that 78 1978 year yeah so well, thank no, you so, so much. Thank you yeah. so much for coming in and doing this with us. I, I I very much appreciate it. Well, don't cut me off until I give you a little poem. Are you going to do it? No, Just... not. We, we don't have time for that one. That we'll do together. No, that okay. will do together. This is also I can't do the whole thing. There was a so I mentioned Archibald McLeish, who was a who by the way was a very liberal guy back in the '30s. Worked became the librarian of Congress. Headed up the original Office of War Information for Roosevelt. Um, and he wrote this poem, basically as a warning to Americans about about uh, to take a lesson from fascists—not a good lesson, but a warning lesson. The thing is titled, oh, "They can't see it, but I'll tell you: America was promises. America was promises." And he makes reference to the few of the founders. One of the reasons I came upon this is that he actually mentions Thomas Paine in a very nice and favorable, progressive way. But late in the speech, he refers, of course, to what was going on in the world in the late 30s and the, you know, the, the march of fascism. And he, and he essentially says, you know, America was promises. Notice the was promises. And he, he says, look, the fascists have come to realize what it takes to make history. So he says, listen, brothers, generation, listen, you have heard these words. Believe it. Believe the promises are theirs who take them. Okay, and he goes on from there, and I'm going to just read you the last lines, okay? America is promises to take. America is promises to us to take them brutally with love, but take them, believe this. What he's getting at is the promise does not make itself happen, doesn't realize itself, okay? It's going to, revol it's going to involve a struggle. I love it. I mean, I needed this. I needed this. Uh, I needed this lesson. I mean, you and I had that little interaction on the, on social media, and I I know I kind of I needed this lesson for sure, for sure. I appreciate. You know, it I love talking much. about it. So yeah, I, I appreciate it very much. I hope, are you getting a vaccine out there? Do you? Have well, you I was going to say the good news is that in this depressing week of depressing football week, that I got the my wife and I got the first round of the vaccine yesterday. Oh, nice. Great. So, so you have another day in 21 days. Well, 20 days now we get the second round. Has the administration in Wisconsin been pretty good? I mean, well, you didn't have a lot of issues signing up and getting to the well, spot. It's funny and all you say that. that a month ago we were told it would be a long wait. They didn't even have enough for the first line workers. And then all of a sudden, 10 days ago, the news came out here in northeast Wisconsin. You can now sign up if you're over the age of 65 to get the vaccine vaccinations. Which we did, and then we then we kept worrying. Well, are they going to run out before we get in? And there was no problem. We're hoping similarly in three weeks there'll be no problem. And by the way, this is a this is a truly perverse state right now. I and I love Wisconsin, but we've become a terribly perverse state. We do now have a Democratic governor after too many years of the cokehead, Scott Walker. Okay. But what really has continued to haunt us is the Republican legislature. So when our Democratic governor issued a mandate to wear masks, the Republican legislature overrode the mandate. So as a consequence, when schools were first starting up, meaning colleges and stuff, there were, we spiked. We became like one of the hottest spots in the nation. And by the way, here in Green Bay, where we have various industries, the meatpacking plants, which are mostly Latino workers, they were really the hottest spots going. One of the plants is two blocks away from where I live right now. Well, where I've always lived here in Green Bay, basically. 
So, yeah, and we've had a very, very tough time of it. But if we were able to get the vaccine now, it's a sign that things may go smoothly here, may go smoothly. That's all I can say. Yeah, it's, it's uh, everybody's on a knife's edge. We have big um, uh, agricultural processing in the south of the state, but we're so small, it's, you know, maybe an hour away. And it's a lot of undocumented folks and they had uh, some outbreaks and some and some fatalities too early on, you know, last year, and you know we've been tracking it, but yeah, it's 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 not a great situation. But uh, things are starting to open up. Um, so I, you know, my my wife is a nurse and she has worked a couple like uh, she's on the the state medical reserves. It's like the emergency yeah. reserves. Did so she, she get a vaccine then? She got a vaccine and then she was able to go do a big. Uh, they're taking people th- the public through like the DMV lanes where you take your car. Yeah, oh, okay. And doing that, they that's did how ours they're... at the university here in my yeah, campus. So, where I taught it. So did you get a... one? Have you I been have, able to get one? I haven't got one. My number's going to be when mine. I mean, I can't imagine my number coming up before summertime. You know, the <laughs> I don't shame know. of it is there should have been a rule that, and I'm not doing this just for your sake, saying this, but if if people are in a household. If one gets it, they both should be getting it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my really wife got it because she's a she's a one A medical worker. Well, that but yeah, but, more, but apparently even with the vaccine, you can carry it. You just can't suffer it. Right. So you have to be really careful. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm in the house, you know, with her. I do because you know I work from home. Yeah. Uh, and we share one only one car so I, what everything i do during the day if i go to the supermarket or the drugstore or whatever yeah. just in the just in the neighborhood sure that's what so we just, do. just right. mask up and go out yeah. so there's you know i'm not i'm never inside with anybody else um but of course you know my wife is out working and seeing patients and stuff so yeah when she comes home just wipe her down with disinfectant <laughs> i'll let her know <laughs> no no don't tell her <laughs> Professor K, thanks a lot. Um, Thank I'm, you, Robert. I'm sure, we'll be in, I'm sure we'll be in touch um, just so you can give me more lessons. Okay, listen. You can go online. The poetry is there. Langston Hughes, Let America Be America. And then we can work on that for next time, okay? I'm on it. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.